Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, well, as Daniel has said, uh, this today's Epiphany Sunday. Epiphany follows the end of Christmas tide. Uh, Christmas tide is a 12-day uh, season that begins on Christmas Day. Uh, so it turns out the 12 days of Christmas is not just the most annoying Christmas song ever. It's actually a thing. Uh, there are 12 days in Christmas. Uh, and Epiphany actually celebrates uh, the coming of the Magi to the Christ child and represents for us. Uh, the gospel going into the Gentile world. And so if you are here today and you are not Jewish, which I would assume is most of us, uh, Epiphany is a big deal because uh, it recognizes that the gospel has gone into uh, the Gentile world. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that in Matthew's uh, telling of this story and of the Christmas story, uh, once you get Jesus born, it's actually Herod and the Magi that take center stage in the narrative as Matthew tells it. Uh, so the main players, Mary, Joseph, and others, are hardly mentioned at all. And I actually want to read this passage in Matthew uh, where the Herod, King Herod, and the Magi kind of take center stage and use that as our epiphany text and hopefully learn uh, some new things about the significance of uh, epiphany. Uh, chances are, if you grew up in a Protestant church, uh, then maybe you haven't uh, paid a lot of attention to Epiphany. This may be your first ever Epiphany service or your Epiphany party, uh, so we're excited that you are here. Uh, but let's read uh, Matthew. You can follow along. It's found in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, uh, Where is the one who was born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, he asked them where Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for uh, this is what the prophet has written. Uh, verse 6, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of all of my people Israel. Now then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. Now we, of course, if we read on in the narrative, we know that this is a ruse uh, from Herod. This is not his intention at all, is to worship, but rather to rid himself of the threat of another king. Uh, verse 9, after they uh, heard the king, that is King Herod, they went on their way and the star that had been in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. Then they opened up their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of God for the people of God. Uh, now, if we are really hearing this story, the first question that we might ask is, uh, why are non-Jewish astrologers chasing mangers, uh, right? 
I mean, if we're really hearing this story for what it is, then that's, that's a question that we would ask automatically. Now, chances are we're not asking that question because we're so used to the Magi, uh, what we have called through history, called kings. We three kings of Orient are. Uh, but if we're really reading this story with kind of fresh and new eyes, the immediate question is, what are non-Jewish astrologers doing chasing mangers? Now, the answer has to do with the curiosity of the star that appeared in the sky. Uh, for the ancient magi, and the word magi here is most accurately translated as astrologer in this context, uh, the heavens and the earth were believed to be intimately uh, intertwined and connected. Uh, that is to say that any significant event on earth would then be reflected in, with some sort of event in the heavens. Uh, and the converse is also true, that any significant event in the heavens meant that there was a corresponding event on earth to be searched out and discovered. So naturally, these curious and rich, they had to be rich in order to make this journey. Uh, many historians believe they traveled over a thousand miles. Uh, and this is not just like jump in a car and drive uh, a few days. This is uh, a journey of a thousand miles. So they had to be rich. They're curious, they're rich astrologers. They certainly would have sought out the earthly counterpart to this curiosity in the sky, no matter its nature. Uh, now, modern day astronomers have been able to determine that sometime around 7 BC, there was a conjunction, uh, that is the lining up of multiple planets, a conjunction between Jupiter and Saturn. Now, in the ancient mind, Jupiter was commonly regarded as the planet of kings. Uh, and because uh, Jupiter is named after the Roman god of the kings. Uh, now, as parents do, last night when we were uh, putting our kids to bed and we were leading, reading our last Christmas story on the 12th day of Christmas, I began to take the liberty of explaining all of this to my 10-year-old and 7-year-old. Uh, and my 7-year-old says, well, yeah, Jupiter is named after the Roman god of the kings. And I was like, whoa, like I learned that last year. You know, like, where, where did you learn that? And she's like, Dad, in something called school? <laughs> so I said, so, so this is just like so me, right? Uh, one of my favorite books, this is, like, this is like totally a side train here, if you'll allow me a few seconds. Uh, I, I, uh, I, so I was like trying to play along with this. One of my favorite books is A Farewell to Mars. Uh, and, and at first that title seems weird. So I said, well, do you know where Mars gets its name? And she's like, yeah, the god of war. And I was like, whoa, okay, like amazing. Okay, good job, Liberty Common School. So uh, anyway, if you want like, if you want some like just Greek mythology, just go to eKids and you'll learn tons. Um, so, so Jupiter is named after the Roman god of the kings uh, and Saturn is often associated with uh, Palestine or the Jewish people. So a conjunction in the sky between Jupiter and Saturn uh, the implication is pretty clear. There is a new king of the Jews who is about to be born. And so because of this curiosity, these non-Jewish astrologers are chasing mangers. Uh, now that's where Herod actually enters the story, and he gets caught up in this story. Uh, it's interesting, too, that every story has a Herod, right? Herod is not a good guy, uh, and Herod presents some, some problem, some conflict in the story. And every story has some kind of, of Herod, some sort of conflict uh, or difficulty that, that arises. 
Now, Herod is the king of the Jews. Uh, so any talk about a new king is certainly a threat to him. Uh, this is why the scripture says that he was deeply troubled. Uh, talk of a new king is always a threat to the establishment. So what he does is he responds to this threat in the way that kings before him and since have responded to threat. Uh, he uses his privilege and power to uh, try to eliminate the threat at any cost. Uh, and as I said, as we're reading the scripture, uh, Herod kind of gives a ruse to the Magi. Oh, let me know exactly where this child is. I want to go and worship him as well. What we actually learn in the story is that he wants to go and just kill all the boys that are around Jesus' age so he can make sure and get the one who is a threat to his power. You see, when you're concerned with protecting power and privilege, even the birth of a baby can be considered a threat. When you are on top, you have to constantly be looking over your shoulder. And it seems that our capacity for grotesque action in the name of security is almost unlimited. So for Herod, this meant finding boys around the age of Jesus and having them executed. Uh, what's interesting is we don't often talk about the dark side of Christmas, right? Uh, we, don't, we don't talk about this in uh, bedtime Christmas stories uh, that we read to our kids, and we certainly don't sing about it in our Christmas carols. Uh, but nonetheless, it is part of this story. Uh, every story has a Herod. Now, what Matthew is doing is actually, if we're reading it correctly and reading it in its context and with fresh eyes, what Matthew is doing is he's providing some very charged political commentary. Because implicit to the story is the claim that Herod is an imposter king. Uh, that if Jesus is the true king of the Jews, then Herod, Matthew is saying through his narrative, is a false king. Uh, he's a usurper. He is the anti-king. Um, and actually what Matthew is going to try to show us as we read throughout his entire narrative is he's going to try to develop this claim of the true kingship of Jesus as, is com as compared to the anti-kingship of Herod. He's going to try to show us what real kings do and how real kings act. And so if we're listening, we'll see this juxtaposition of the kingship of Herod, who is Jewish, by the way, and would have been fully aware of any prophecies regarding the coming of a Messiah. Right? Like, like let's, not, let's not understand the irony of this story, that the non-Jewish astrologers are chasing the manger, and then the Jewish king who would have fully been aware of any expectation and prophecy regarding a Messiah is threatened with his, because of the position that he holds. And so the juxtaposition should be clear between the kingship of Herod and the kingship of Christ. And even at the most basic level, I want you to consider Herod who uses his privilege and his power to eliminate any potential threats to his position compared with Jesus who lets go of his privilege in order to redeem, who gives up power in order to enter in and to heal. The difference is actually meant to be very, very stark. And Matthew's message is this is what true kingship looks like.
So at the most basic level, the story of Epiphany is, is teaching us something about the, the kingship of Christ and what it means, and he's doing that by showing us the anti-king or the dark side uh, of this story. Uh, in other words, it's, it's really difficult to understand the brightness of the light, the uniqueness of the light, if not also compared to the dark side, <laughs> Right? Um, and this is very, very sort of implicit, but present in the text as Matthew tells it. Uh, and if all we do is turn the Christmas story into sort of this like sentimental thing, uh, then I think we're missing the complete story. Uh, that we really need to understand uh, what Matthew is doing and how charged this actually is. Now, so far, what Matthew wants to show us in the story is that Uh, A Jewish anti-king felt threatened by the coming of a true king. Uh, But he also wants us to recognize that the promise of the Messiah was never just for the Jewish people. Uh, That this king that is coming, this king who is born king of the Jews, is not just king of the Jews, right? And that's one thing that Matthew wants to make clear over and over again as you read his gospel. And if you haven't ever done this, I would really encourage you to sit down and read one of the gospels from start to finish as a whole. And that will give you a far better sense of like what the author is trying to do uh, as you understand the story as a whole. Uh, what, what happens is if we just take it always in little tiny segments, we don't really, get a cap- we don't really capture it as a whole. Uh, but what Matthew's trying to do in the whole narrative is he's trying to show us that this king who was born king of the Jews, his kingship is not limited to a particular nation. Uh, that he is king over all of the nations, Uh, that he is king, in fact, over all of creation is what Matthew wants us to see and to hear and to understand. In fact, what Matthew wants to do is he wants us to to know what the old, actually the Old Testament prophets have talked about all along, both in their uh, poetry and in their prophecy. For example, Psalm 72 speaks of a king who will rule from sea to sea. Uh, In Isaiah chapter 11, it talks about a king who will rule with righteousness and justice, but who will rule over all of the earth. And so what we get a sense of, even from the very beginning, just the birth of this child, is that Jesus Christ is, in fact, that king who will rule over all of creation. And he will do it with righteousness and justice. And so... Uh, The coming of the Magi to the Christ child represents the gospel going into the Gentile world. And and it's really meant to to be this kind of, it's the Jewish king who was supposed to know what was coming who missed it. And it was the astrologers, the non-Jewish folks, who had no care in the world about the coming Jewish Messiah who went chasing mangers. Um, in other words, maybe painting the Magi as kind of these nice kings isn't quite true to the story. Uh, there's a lot that the Magi can show us, uh, but painting them into like these sentimental kings that show up in a manger uh, actually isn't what the narrative gives us. Consider this quote or this comment on this story uh, from pastor and author Nadi Boltz-Weber. She says this. This is in her book, Accidental Saints. 
Uh, if I asked 100 people the questions who brought gifts, uh, the questions of who brought gifts to the Christ child, how many people there were and where these people were from, and what uh, did they bring gifts to, inevitably everyone would respond, well, three kings from the Orient brought the baby Jesus gifts in a manger. And the people around them would likely nod their heads and say, yeah, that sounds right. Three kings from the Orient bringing gifts to Jesus in a manger is a charming story, but it's actually not the one we find in the Bible. A closer reading of Matthew shows that we have no idea where these people actually came from. Uh, we don't know how far east they, we don't know where they, uh, where these people, sorry, we don't know how many people there were. We don't know how far east they came from. And when they found the child, they entered not a stable or a barn, but a house. And most importantly, they were definitely not kings. They were magi, as in magicians, and not the cute kind that you hire for your kid's birthday party. And more likely, they were opportunistic, pagan, soothsaying, tarot card-reading astrologers. Yet history has made them out to be kings. Maybe because the reality that they were magicians is too distasteful since no one really wants the weird fortune teller lady from the circus with her scarves and crystal balls to be the first one to discover the birth of our Lord. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know if I would get an amen there or not. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of in your face, isn't it? Because it's true. It's in your face, and we kind of are shocked a little bit by it because it's true. We're, we're simply not comfortable with the way this story is presented as Matthew, as, as Matthew tells it. That it's, it's not the Jewish king who, he, upon hearing of the, the, a new Jewish king, says, perhaps this is the Messiah. Let's rush to him and offer him gifts. It's not the inside crowd. It's the outside crowd. It's the Magi. And if the story of the Magi and their gifts means anything to us, it is this. The rule of Christ isn't limited to Jewish people and that God can be found in the most unlikely of places by the most, uh, in, amongst the most unlikely of people. You see, Jesus is king of kings who rules over all of the nations and Matthew wants to make that abundantly clear in his gospel. But Jesus, what he also wants to make clear is that Jesus isn't like the kings that history has always known. In fact, as I've already mentioned, what, what Matthew wants to help us understand is that for all the claims of kingship that Herod has, he's acting like an anti-king. The one who, because of his position of power, and privilege and authority upon hearing a threat would do anything and seek any cost to protect himself from that threat. Compared to the kingship of Jesus, who is a servant leader, who later will wash his disciples' feet, who out of love will take on the sin of the world, who will become an innocent man murdered on a cross, truth is, this is not the kind of king that we like to talk about. But Matthew wants to point us that this is what real kingship looks like. In fact, the, the reality that Jesus isn't like other kings in history before then or since 
is never more clear than when Jesus comes face to face with another king later in his life. But this one, this king is considered the greatest of all kings. In fact, some may have even called this king that Jesus would, would stand face to face with, some may have even given him the title, he is the king of all the other kings. The one I'm talking about is Pilate. Jesus would stand face to face with another king who is Pilate. And Pilate would greet Jesus not with gifts, but with a cross. And when Jesus faces Pilate and goes to the cross, it wouldn't be a bright star that shone over Bethlehem, but rather it would be darkness that falls over all of the land. I want you to see that at his birth, it was pagan astrologers that offered Jesus gifts that were fit for a king. And at his death, it is the voice of a Gentile soldier that says, surely this man was the son of God. You with me this morning? Do you see where I'm going? This is not just a nice, fluffy, easy epiphany message. This is the reality that if we're really reading the biblical narrative, God is going to show up in places that we simply are not comfortable with. That people that we are not uh, comfortable with are going to start recognizing things that we might miss. It was, let me say it again, at his birth, it was pagan astrologers that offered Jesus gifts fit for a king. And at his death, it was the voice of a Gentile soldier that said, surely this man was the son of God. And this should hit us right square in the chest. What it means for us today, and my message this morning is simple, is that the epiphany story shows us that the lines we tend to draw aren't nearly as clear as we had hoped. The story shows us that God can show up in the most unexpected places and among the most unexpected people. But we have to be paying attention. But it also shows us, and, and I think perhaps we could be comfortable with that. But here's the thing that maybe we're probably most uncomfortable with. This story shows us that we, if we are focused on protecting the status quo and defending ourselves from so-called threats, it is very possible we will miss the heart and activity of God. Happy New Year. <laughs> I, I just cannot get over how difficult this message is for me. I don't, I don't ever come to you as one who has everything just figured out, neat, clean, and tidy, and, and, and you know, I'm just over here living the, in the bright, shining light of the presence of God all the time, <laughs> right? I, I wrestle with many of the same things you do. I contemplate, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm struck, I'm awestruck, I'm dumbfounded, I'm confused, I'm frustrated by many of the same things that you are. And yet, I can't avoid 
the truth of this passage. That if my posture toward the world is one of protecting status quo, defending boundary lines that I've drawn, if, if my posture toward the world is protecting myself or defending myself from, from so-called threats. I, I, want you to, I want you to see this, that Herod, in a position of power and, and privilege and authority, he's A, number one, on top, has to always be looking over his shoulder because he's got everything to lose. And he looks over his shoulder and he is threatened by the birth of a baby. To the point where he is willing to say, let's wipe all the babies out that are born in this region around this time. Let's get rid of them all. You see what I'm saying? If my, if my posture to the world is, is one of defense of status quo, then it is quite possible that I will miss the heart and the activity of God. And so we just need to just, and I don't even know I don't have, like, Advent Conspiracy, the series was fun because we ended with, like, all these really practical go home and do this kind of things. I don't know what to go home and do with this. But what I do know is I think God might be calling us to just kind of sit with this a little bit and, and just kind of wrestle with the reality of what this story is showing us and telling us. That it's... It's these pagan astrologers who bring gifts fit for a king to Jesus. It's a Gentile soldier who at the death of Christ says, surely this man was the son of God. That God can show up in the most unexpected places, in the most unexpected ways, in the most, among the most unexpected people, but we have to be paying attention. And if... if if we are trying to protect ourselves too much, then it's quite possible we might miss it. I want to pray for us. Um, and I want to pray that, that we would be open to the moving and stirring of God, that maybe our eyes would be opened uh, to the movement of the Spirit of God uh, in our own life, uh, certainly in our world, and just to recognize what God might be up to. And, and maybe, maybe sometimes admit that he might be up to stuff that we aren't exactly just perfectly comfortable with. Um, so let's, let's pray. God, these um, truths from your word today are difficult to hear. Um, and so, God, we come to you with humble hearts, asking, Lord, that you would uh, give us discernment. Uh, what we need, and I think this is true for all people for all time, but it feels particularly true for us in our time, is what we need is discernment. That we might be able to see the activity of your Spirit 
uh, in our lives and in our world, and not be too distracted um, that we might miss it. So God, I suppose the prayer for me and certainly for our church is, is that we would have open and discerning hearts. Um, that we might be able to discern between spirits of evil that are no good and, and are destructive and then spirits that your Holy Spirit that is moving and working and active in our world, working toward redemption, working toward forgiveness and reconciliation. And so God, we, we recognize that that kind of on paper or on the surface, it seems like that would be quite easy, but in, in real life, it's um, quite complicated and nuanced. And, and so God, uh, help us this Epiphany Sunday and this year to uh, be open and be discerning to the work of your Holy Spirit. We ask this humbly in the name of Jesus Christ, King of kings, King over all of creation, Lord of lords, Lord over all the nations, Jesus Christ. Amen.